Well, good morning. My name is Seth McCoy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, that's sweet. In this month, on May, in 1865, Charleston, South Carolina, was the very first Memorial Day. A group of newly freed black slaves uh, came upon a mass grave in a Confederate prison camp. And those newly freed slaves decided that human dignity was important and that flesh and blood shouldn't be buried in a mass grave. They exhumed 257 Union soldiers. They dug them individual graves, landscaped and put flowers. And then 3,000 black children led the parade that was the very first Memorial Day that said, human life is worth dignity. It's worth something. This weekend, we're continuing our series called Flesh and Blood. And I want to talk to you today about what do we do when conflict burns? Because it does, doesn't it? I was watching the news in San Diego at a Donald Trump rally. Uh, Trump supporters and protesters, there was such a heated conflict, it boiled over beyond ideological disagreement into hostility. Police force had to be called in. And I don't know about you. I watch the news. I see the political conflict. I see the economic divide. The racial conflict. It's out there in our world. To the point that I, I can feel overwhelmed. Afraid to like not talk about it. But then again, afraid to talk about it. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? Sometimes it can be easy for me, and maybe easy for you, to mainly frame this idea of conflict and violence as something that happens out over there. When in reality, the conflict isn't just out there between nations and countries and people. The conflict happens at my work, which is here. Conflict happens in my home. Anybody living in a home where conflict is burning right now? And it hurts. Any of you living in a marriage that's stuck in conflict, moved from conflict to hostility? Truth of the matter is, in my own heart, there's conflict. So, what do we do when conflict burns? The first thing we do is pray. Would you join me in a prayer before we launch off too far? God, do we look around at our world and we see walls of division that can feel insurmountable. But this is your world and you love it. And the truth of the matter is, when we look all around us and we see the violence in our world and in our own homes and workplaces and churches, when we see conflict that just seems stuck as if there will never be peace, we're reminded that it's looked like this before. At the cross. 
And so that's the place that we come today. Pray for the people that are here listening. I pray for the conflicts that are burning right now in their real lives. And we pray together for the conflicts that are burning in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in this country and in our world. It's your world. God, I ask you to help me. I pray that you would fill my words with something that I can't manufacture on my own, and that's your power to heal, to unite, to encourage, and to bring hope. God, I'm not the hope of the world, but you are. In your name. Amen. Sometimes one of the things that people who are Christians and have been Christians for a long time struggle with or people who don't know much about the Bible is a book that was written at 2000 and even older. Some of the books, it can feel distant and maybe even dated as if like the problems that we're facing are much more complex, much more difficult, much more challenging. They feel much more unsolvable. Problems of the ancient days must have been primitive and much more easy to solve. And you know, that's just not true. A guy who wrote most of the New Testament, we know him as Paul. Paul lived in a world that was very much like ours. He lived and traveled and planted churches and worked uh, in countries that were either part of a giant global empire or under occupation from that empire, a military and economic superpower who got its way by killing and war, who took and captured slaves in order to fuel the economy. In a world where the divide between women's rights and men's rights was a gap that was giant. He lived in a world that was not that different than ours. His problems have been around for a long time. In fact, uh, Paul, being raised as a Pharisee, um, would have prayed a prayer that not only would have um, not wanted walls of division torn down, he actually celebrated and thanked God for them. Actually, as a Pharisee, there was a prayer that it's most likely that he prayed because it's historical record that it was prayed where Pharisees would sort of turn their eyes to heaven and say, blessed are you, God. Thank you, God, that you made me a man and not a woman. Thank you for that. And Paul would pray, thank you that you made me free and not a slave. Thank you for that. And thank God I'm a Jew, a child of Israel, not a Gentile. God, thank you for these walls and thank you that I'm on the right side of them. Now this guy, he wasn't always known as Paul. Uh, He started out Saul. And a guy named Saul took a road, uh, a journey along a road in Damascus and he met Jesus face to face. That encounter transformed his life so much that he wrote a significant amount of the New Testament. I want you to see what it is that Paul wrote about the dividing lines and walls of hostility in his world. Let's take a look at it. It's in Galatians. He's writing to the church and he says, You are children of God, all of you, through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And I want you to notice the categories. It's not a coincidence. Now there is no longer Jew or Gentile. No longer slave or free. No longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Paul's day, the dividing line of hostility of race, of politics, of economics, of gender. There was a place where those walls were torn down. How? How in the day that he lived, just like the day that we live in, how could these insurmountable walls of division and walls of hostility, how could they ever be torn down to find peace? How could our world change? How could there be a group of people that against all odds refuse to live according to those same lines of hostility and division? How does that happen? It's just one reason. There's only one thing that can do that. Because somebody died. Paul writes about it in another letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesians. Let's see what he said about this. He said he, he's talking about Jesus. He is the embodiment of our peace. He was sent once and for all. Man, to take down the great barrier. It's a great barrier, isn't it? The barrier of hatred and hostility that has divided us and He's done it so that we can be one. How did He do it? He offered His body. Somebody died on the sacrificial altar. Let's keep going. His desire, the thing He longed for, was to create in His body one new humanity from two opposing groups. Creating peace. Effectively, the cross becomes God's means to kill off the hostility. And not just once. Not just back then. It's God's means to kill off the hostility once and for all. So that He is able to, this is a great word, He is able to reconcile them both to God in this one new body. The dividing walls of hostility, they're terrible. And we all know the most evil wall that divides human beings in our day is found on every single airplane in America. The dividing wall, actually it's a curtain between first class and coach, right? Most of the time that I've flown, I've flown in coach. And you know the feeling, you know, walking along the aisle and you're passing all the people in first class and you're thinking to yourself, these people up here, they don't know what real life is like. Real life is in the back where all the people live. We, the people of coach, we're the real humans, right? Until one time, my dad and I, we got an upgrade and we sat in first class. Um, it was so long ago that Andy Gibb from the Bee Gees was in first class with us. That's how long it was, okay? And first class, I found out, is amazing. Towards the end of your flight, 
You know, they can see that I'm sweaty because I'm nervous. They bring me a, a warm towel that smells like lemon to clean off the facial sweat. Uh, in coach, you just have to sit there with your facial sweat. No solutions, right? In coach, you get a little plastic cup with some Sprite in it. You know, in first class, you get real dishes and glasses, real stuff. I'll tell you what I've never seen. Never seen anyone get up from first class and walk to that curtain that had been closed and rip it down and say, Jesus has torn down the dividing wall. We will no longer be separated on this airplane. I've never seen that happen. Have you? They'd kill somebody for ripping that curtain down, right? And yet, one day, a first-class God walked up to the curtain that divided me from him because I was in coach. I was so far back in coach, I was in the seat that doesn't recline because it leans against the bathroom. That's how far back in coach I was. And that first-class God tore down that curtain and said we could be one. What about your walls? It's sometimes easy to talk about the walls that are out there. What are the walls, the dividing lines of hostility that are in your own heart? Maybe there's some of you here. There's a dividing wall of hostility between you and God. And I want you to know from God's side, He wants it down. He hates that wall. Between you and your spouse, maybe you're here today. And there's a dividing line of hostility that you can't seem to break down. God wants it down. In your family, in your workplace with a coworker, in your neighborhood, someone within your um, house church, within this church, in his body, he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility so that in his body, we could be one. How? How in the world can that happen? Because in his body, he tore that wall down. It's actually kind of ironic. He said there was two groups that were opposing each other and in his body he brought them together. And ironically, the way that that happened, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles could agree about almost nothing. But there is one thing they agreed so much about that they worked together, each one doing its part perfectly. And that one thing that they agreed on is both of them decided that Jesus had torn down enough walls that he should get killed. And they killed him. Ironically, in his body, the first thing that Jews and Gentiles did together was kill him. And in his body, he took on all of our hostility on his back as he was whipped and on his head as they put a crown of thorns. And the hostility of shame he took on with a sarcastic sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. He took on our disgrace because on his body they spit and they nailed his hands and his feet and they killed his body 
I killed his body. And they pulled it off the cross and they put it in the tomb. And it just so happens that when Jesus gave up his spirit on that cross, the giant curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Because God hates a wall. He wants it down. And that body that they killed, it was an amazing body. Because with that body, he loved people. With his hands, he reached out and touched people that others wouldn't. And with his eyes, he looked with eyes of compassion at the suffering and struggle of those people that were around him. With his mouth, he said words that brought hope and healing and life. With his body, he loved. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility, not just on the cross. He did it every day with his life. It was an amazing body. And the guy who wrote those words in Ephesians, he knew something about tearing apart bodies. When we first meet Paul, he's not actually Paul. His name is Saul. And he's convinced that God loves these walls of division and will fight to keep them up. Will fight so hard that it was his mandate to kill people. To find little churches and to enter those churches and to kill the people that were inside. And sometimes because this is in the Scriptures, we can think of it as real sterile. You know, Memorial Day started in Charleston, South Carolina. Something else last year happened in Charleston, South Carolina. A guy with that same mentality decided that racial walls shouldn't be torn down. They should stay up. He walked into a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and he opened fire. It's unspeakable. And that was Saul's job. It's what he did. So when Saul writes down, in his body he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Saul spent a lifetime helping to build and rebuild and strengthen those walls until he met on the road to Damascus the man whose body had torn down that wall of hostility. And he came to the realization, God does not love a wall. God wants it down. And a pretty amazing thing, you know, in the Bible, lots of times when people meet God or discover their calling, God will change their name. You know, he did it to Abraham. First, he was Abram. Abram's name got changed to Abraham. You're the father of many nations. Jacob wrestled with God all night long. God touches his hip and says, you're no longer Jacob, which means struggler or deceiver. He changes his name to Israel, which means the one who overcomes. Peter, the sort of loudmouth, kind of foolish disciple who ends up being a real strong part of the church, his name gets changed from Simon to Peter, Petros, rock. And then Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church because something is important in a name. Now Paul, looking back at the life that he lived before, his job was to make sure it was real clear. We are us and the people out there are them and that wall should stay strong. You know, his name was Saul. He was a Jew. He was named after King Saul in the Old Testament. 
But Saul decides that his identity has changed and so his name should change. And he changes his name from Saul, which is a Jewish name, to Paulos, which is a Greek name. Because in his name, he realizes, I'm not one of us. I'm one of them. God wants the wall down. And I want you to know that God's still doing that. He's still doing it. How? How is it that this power that Jesus in His body torn down the dividing wall, how does that make a difference for you and I today? We think about what's happening in our world, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and our hearts. How can we have hope that the walls that seem like they will never come down, how can we have hope that they will? With that body that Jesus loved, that we killed, that body was resurrected. And then that body appeared to the disciples. And that body breathed the Holy Spirit onto the disciples and said, keep doing the work that I taught you how to do. And by some amazing miracle, they did. The truth of the matter is, is Jesus has a new body now. And it's you. It's the church. Paul, the same writer, does a masterful job when he creates this metaphor and reality about what the church is. The church is the new body of Christ. What did the first body do? So what does the new body do? Now, I've got three kids. My oldest son's named Judah. And when he was first born... Um, it was an amazing thing. I never realized how big a baby's head is in comparison to the body. He had a giant head when he was born. It was like an orange on a toothpick. (laughs) And since I have the gift of mercy and encouragement, I wanted to give him a nickname that would kind of help him since he had such a big head. I called him Fathead. (laughs) It's my gift of encouragement, you know? It's the most amazing thing about about, uh, the way bodies work. Did you know that bodies are designed, the structure of the body is designed to perfectly hold up the head? Sorry, who's the head of the church? Now, it's not the pastors. Who's the head of the church? It's Jesus. The body, you and I, we are built to work together to hold up the head. And when babies are first learning to move, because eventually they do have to do that, they have to start walking and moving around, one of the first things that babies do to learn motion is they learn to roll over. You ever seen a baby when they're like just sort of learning and figuring out how to do this? There's like a kind of a a pattern to it. The first thing that goes is their eyes. Their eyes like look off in this direction that they want their body to roll. And then what do they lead with? What's the first part of the body that moves that direction? You all know it. It's the head. Because it's so giant, right? If the head can go, the rest of it's easy to follow. So their heads go first and then they roll over. You know that Jesus' body is designed to move because God has things that He wants to do in the world. There are walls in our world and in our city and our communities and our families, walls that are to come down, conflicts which are burning that are need to find peace. Jesus has a lot of work that He wants to do. He's the head and He's attached Himself to the body, which is you and I. What kind of body are we? How are we doing?
I think about the churches that I grew up in, the churches that I've worked in. Is conflict all that different outside of the church than in the church? Don't we face the same things? Why is it so hard for people in our communities to talk to each other and work together? And why is it so hard for us to talk and work together? You know, it's actually part of the way that bodies are designed. Bodies are designed to move forward by utilizing conflict and tension. So, for instance, when you run, parts of your body have to move and adjust. If you're going to take a step with your left foot, where does your left arm go? It goes back. Your right leg is back. Where does your right arm go? Forward. The spine is in the middle and it's a constant rotation, letting one part move out while the other part stands back and counterbalances and supports it. This is the way that bodies are meant to work. Through conflict, through difference, but working together, bodies physically move forward. Why is that so hard for us? couple of reasons. Now, I grew up in Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles, every yard has a fence or a concrete wall. I grew up, I mean, the concrete wall in my backyard, there was a little hole in it that was right about where the strike zone was. I must have thrown four million tennis balls at that wall. Like a wall was a part of everyday life for us. I think we had a belief that good walls make good neighbors, right? Only problem is when you build a wall, it's pretty important to think about what am I walling in and what am I walling out? I graduated high school and I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota to go to college. There were a number of things that were shocking to me. First was the first winter, right? I got off the plane and got on a shuttle and drove to the college campus. And one of the things I was amazed by is like how green it is here. I was like, look at all the trees and the grass. In California, it's basically brown with patches of green grass for our animals to go to the bathroom on. That's about the extent of the greenness in California. Another thing I was amazed about, uh, somebody after church invited me to go over to their house for dinner. And I went in their house and I looked out of the, the back windows off the kitchen and I looked in their backyards. There was lots of houses. None of the yards had a fence. It was the most amazing thing. I was like, wow, in Minnesota, pe- there, there is no hostility. People love each other and get along perfectly here. It's amazing. <laughs> Until I bought a house. <laughs> Funny thing about Minnesota is um, we, don't, we don't build visible walls, but we're real clear where the boundary is. Now, I first learned this uh, when it came to grass. In the neighborhood, there was a, a green grass contest that I didn't know about. My neighbor was clearly winning. And no one in the neighborhood had any questions about where his yard ended and mine started. That line was real clear, Right? How do we, as Minnesotans, within this church that Jesus longs to be one, there's for sure a temptation to pretend that there are no walls. As if we live in a little neighborhood and we look out the back window and go, there's no hostility here, there's no conflict here. We actually have a name for it. It's called Minnesota Nice. But when conflict is on fire, not talking about it is not nice. It doesn't help. Why is it hard for us to do what Greg challenged us last week to do? Greg said we have to embrace conflict. We have to stop pretending it's not there. But once we stop pretending it's not there and we say, okay, let's deal with it, why is it so hard? 
um, in Psalm chapter 85. Psalm is a work of poetry, uh, an amazing literary work. Um, And I'm not smart enough, but one of my colleagues told me what this is called. In Psalms, uh, Psalm 85, we're going to get introduced to four different ideas. Mercy and truth and righteousness and peace, which are ideas. But in this psalm, two ideas can't kiss each other, but two people can. He said the psalmist is making these ideas into people. Mercy and truth. Mercy and truth are people. And the kingdom comes when they meet together. Righteousness, or another biblical word for that is justice. Justice and peace have kissed. They've come together. Now, um, I, I drew a little four, uh, two by two diagram uh, a few weeks back, and it was so popular. My artistic skills with a whiteboard and this marker here are in such high demand that I decided I'm going to do it again. I am going to give you a second to pull out your bulletin and kind of a pen or something. I'm going to give you fair warning. My title here is the creative and teaching pastor. That means I'm a teacher. What do all teachers do after uh, a lecture? Assign homework. You're totally going to get homework today. You should get out your bulletin and a pen to write on. Uh, I will leave this up after the service if you do want to come snap a picture of it. Okay? In this terrific book by a Mennonite, um, a Mennonite peacemaker named John Paul Lederach, he wrote a book called Reconcile. He took these verses and in the very back of the book, he wrote a dramatic presentation as if truth and mercy and justice and peace were people. And he interviewed them around the table. And what he was trying to do is help us understand what is it that each one of these people wants and needs. And I'm just going to give you a warning up front. Um, I believe that all of us in this room are represented by one of these people. One of these is a driving force for the way that God has built us so that when it comes to working through conflict and tearing down walls, each of us has a strength that we need to bring to the table. And each of us has needs. We have something that we need in order to feel like the conflict is resolved. Okay, let me introduce you to truth. Some of you people are truth people. When, you're in a, when a truth person is in a conflict, they have a driving force that's inside of them. I think it's something that God gave them. It's a gift that's needed around the table of reconciliation. What truth wants to know is what is really going on? This fight really isn't about the dishes, right? You know what I mean? This conflict between me and my son really isn't about the grades. There's something else going on, and truth wants to seek it out, needs to know. Unless I know what is really going on, we can't move forward in healing. Now, in his book, uh, John Paul Lederach, when he's interviewing, he interviews truth, and he says, truth of all these other people... When you think about our friend justice and our friend peace and our friend mercy, he asked the question, who is it that truth fears the most? And truth said mercy. I fear mercy because mercy most wants to forgive. And mercy wants us to remember that nobody is perfect. 
So truth says, I need to know what is really going on. And mercy says, let's move on. You ever heard this phrase, forgive and for? But we all know that forgiving and forgetting doesn't lead to healing. Truth wants to get at the bottom of what happened and mercy wants to move forward. Which one of these do we need in order to have reconciliation? Both. All right, I'm going to introduce you to somebody else. Justice. And justice says, let's fix it and move on. We have work to do. Okay, full disclosure, this is me. In a conflict of reconciliation, one of the ways that God has gifted me is I want to fix it because I want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Now, the truth is, none of us are completely one of these. I have all of these components, but I have these ones in smaller degrees. These ones down here in the smallest. This is my strength. It's the thing that I bring to the body. All right, and the last one is peace. What peace wants is, let's stick together. Can't we all just get along, right? Harmony. Who are you? I just want to check in on y'all. I want you to raise your hand if you know. Like, I know I I have... No one has only one of them. I have some of each of these components, but one of those is clearly my strength. How many of you know which one you are right now? Just hold your hand up. Let me see. Yeah, a good number of us, right? Um, Now, if you're married, you already know your spouses, right? So you're like pointing that way. Oh, I totally know what they are. Three things I want to challenge you on. I would love for you to write this down. There's a few ways that I think looking at conflict through a lens like this is super helpful. The first way for me is if this is a window I'm looking through and this is different strengths, even on days that I'm at 100%, which is very few, if any, me at my best is still only 25% of the solution. You ever met with somebody in a conflict and they're certain that they're 100% of it? And unless you get on their page, it's going nowhere. Reconciliation can't happen. You at your best in a conflict, you only bring 25% of what's needed. Which means if you can be self-aware about that, that's the first thing. Self-awareness about your own strengths does something else. The second thing it does is it reminds us, like Danny said during worship, we are vulnerable. And the reason we're vulnerable is because we need each other. 75% of the solution in conflict is outside of me. Other people have to help because I can't do this. I can't do it. So first thing is self-awareness. I would love for you to take a picture, write this down, and try to identify this week, which one are you? So the next time you're in a conflict, you know. I know that the thing I want to do is fix it. But there's been conflicts I've been in when I've been trying to fix it, and I actually made it worse. I've sat with people who are truth, and they wanted to shine a light to find out what's really going on, but that light was too strong, and it burned, and it made the problem worse. I've seen people look for peace, and in the name of harmony, they just said, let's not talk about what's really happening. Let's just pretend to get along. Artificial harmony, it's killing us. 
And I've seen people to remind us to say, like, none of us are perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. But we need each other. The third thing I'd love you to do. So the first thing was identify which one you are. The second thing is remember that 75% of the solution is outside of you. You're vulnerable. You need each other. We need each other. And then the third one is conflict transformation requires something called hopeful listening. What do I do if all the things going on in my head about all the reasons why I'm right, if that's only 25% of the equation, the only way I'm going to get to solving the problem is to listen. What is it that peace has to say to me? What is it that mercy needs to remind me of when I'm trying to fix it? These are people. There's a deep cry for justice in our world. And at the same time, that is outstanding that there's a cry for justice. And we have to remember there's people involved. People like me who are broken. Okay, here's your homework. I want you to think about a conflict that you're currently in. You don't have to say it out loud. Please don't. (laughs) My kids, right? Think about a conflict that you're currently in and think about the individual people who are part of that conflict and try to identify what's their main driving motivation. What's the skill that they bring to the conflict resolution? How could those different skills within that conflict be used to transform it? How could you be challenged and called to listen with hope? Because listening is important. But hopeful listening is even more important. You say, Seth, you don't understand. My marriage has been stuck for 20 years. And there's no hope. My kids, our relationship is fractured with my son. It's been 30 years. There's no hope. The racial tensions in our city are at a point where there's no hope. I just want to say it's the job of the body to hold up the head. Do you think Jesus has given up hope? How can we hope? It's not just Memorial's Day, sorry, Memorial Day that happened in Charleston, South Carolina. A woman named Felicia Sanders was at that Bible study. She was there with her son Twanza. He was killed. She survived. Because the bloodshed and the carnage was so much that if she just laid still, it looked like she was dead too. And she did. Her son Twanza died. He was a handsome man with a dazzling smile. He was a poet, a musician, an entrepreneur. He was a barber who cut hair while telling everyone in the shop that one day the whole world would know his name. But not like this. His friends called him Wanza. He had his mom's name tattooed on his chest while she was fighting cancer. Felicia told him, no girl's going to want to marry you with your mom's name on your chest. (laughs) That'll be their loss, he said. Wanza told her everything, even things that make moms uncomfortable. She never wanted to say no to him. We were like one person sometimes. She said, I took him to Bible study because what's safer than a Bible study? The killer, Dylan Roof, is on trial 
The state is going after the death penalty. These families of Christians spoke at his trial. And they did something amazingly courageous. They told the truth. Dylan, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never get to see him again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I ask for mercy for you. You hurt me and you hurt a lot of people, they said. But God forgives you. And so I forgive you too. Felicia Sanders, who survived this massacre, she prayed that God would have mercy on him. And she asked the FBI for one thing, the return of two Bibles. The FBI said they're not recoverable. She insisted. So the investigators sent her Bible and Twanza's Bible to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's high-tech labs in Quantico, Virginia, where they were cleaned as thoroughly as possible, one leaf page at a time. Felicia Sanders has them now. The pages are pink with blood that will never wash away. But she can still make out the words. I can't help but think of that song that we've sung for many years. What can wash away our sin? What can make me whole again? What can make you whole again? Why should we have any hope? There's just one thing. There's only one thing that can lead to this kind of reconciliation and forgiveness. There's only one thing. That's because the guy died. And in his body, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Every single one of them. And that guy that died is now the head of the church. The body of people who used to sit back and coach and whose king tore down the wall so that we could be one. Let us have the same hope that God has. Let us have the same ears that were in that body to listen and to love. Would you stand as we close in prayer? As a small symbol of this idea of walls coming down, I would love for the wall of space between us and on the aisles to come down by us reaching out a hand I would love to close this prayer with all of us holding hands. Hmm. All right, let's pray together. God, there's just one thing that can wash away our sin. There's only one thing that can tear down the walls that divide us and make us whole, put us back together again. There's just one thing. It's you. You tore down the dividing wall of hostility between me and you. I used to be way back there. I was far off. 
You met a guy named Saul on the road to Damascus, a man who murdered cold-blooded Christians. And when he met you, his life changed. He turned from the biggest wall builder and he started building bridges. God, I pray that we as a body, pray that those of us that are truth here, to the best that they can, would ask the question, what happened? And I pray that justice would say, let's fix it. And I pray that peace would say, let's stick together. And I pray that mercy would say, don't forget that you are a sinner too. I pray that we as a body can work together to hold you up. You are the head. Because my life is your life. And this is your church. And this world that we live in is your world. You have a vision for it. You lead it. And we want to follow. Teach us how to do that. In your name. Amen. Prayer team is going to be up front afterwards. So pray for you if you have a need. Have a great week.